0: Welcome to Going Off Track. Hey! What's up, Brad? Well, what's up? You know, winter's in full swing. True. As you know. Yes. Um, happy Valentine's Day.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you very much. Um, that's recently passed as well. Yes, that is true. Um, I'm excited about today's podcast. Yes, I guess. I'm also excited. I think that probably a few of our listeners will be excited too. Yes, if you're a fan of uh, punk rock, science, science,
1: <laughs> science, uh, ecology, or punk rock, uh, today's guest is Greg Graffin, who's sung for Bad Religion for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has a PhD and has written um, several books and is just a very down to earth yet super smart guy. And you know what obviously like one of the people that got me into punk i don't know if they, they mean for me like the bands were like rancid bad religion Effects no were like my trinity in <laughs> high school trinity, yeah. yeah so i think that's
0: the case for a lot of people and we've
1: had fat mike on the podcast so i haven't had greg haven't had anyone from rancid that would be amazing i know those are your buds brad but uh yeah for me this was a very this was one of those podcasts where like i was like Asked if he could do it, and then when, when, I, when Epitaph was like, yeah, he'll do it, I was like, what, really? <laughs> like, I went into it it's, it's assuming he wouldn't, because uh, Greg doesn't do a lot of this yeah, kind of no, stuff. Yeah, no, not at all. So it was really cool of him to come out to Brooklyn, and to do this, he brought his daughter. She was very nice.
0: And, she just
1: uh, uh, graduated, I think, She just right? graduated college. So he's a successful father. Successful father. He raised
0: a college grad. There yeah, you go.
1: not bad. Let's, let's hope Greg can say the same at some point. Whew. who knows uh but yeah we talked we talked about music we also talked about greg's new album Millport, which um it's him and some of the guys johnny two bags and some of the guys from social distortion and that comes out on anti on march next week march 10th yeah so pick that up it's a really cool record uh side note we recorded this episode a very long time ago so the album hadn't been announced yet so we kind of talk about it a little at the end um, secretively. <laughs> secretively, as if it's a big secret. The secret's out now. <laughs> so, that's maybe why, if you're wondering why we didn't mention it until the very end, and Greg kind of brought it up, that, that's why we wanted to do this podcast to promote the record, but did it so far in advance because that's just when Bad Religion were playing here with against me. Right. Um, so, anyways, uh, a lot of what we talked about was also in Greg's book, which, if you dug this conversation, you should check out. It's called Population Wars A New Perspective on Competition and Coexistence. And it's super light reading. You'll breeze through it in like an hour. It's good
0: put it in the toilet.
1: Yeah. It's, I'm, I don't understand why it didn't come with crayons. But uh, no, it's very dense. It's not dense, but it's, but it's very readable. It's very readable, but it's very heady subject matter. It's really interesting. But it's, like I said, it's uh, it's one of those books like you can't like do other, it's not like you can't do a bunch of other shit when you're reading it. Like you got to like really sit down, open it up and like really focus on it, which uh, is, and when you're done, it feels great. But it's, you got to get in the right state of mind to do it. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, let's get into it with, um, with Bad Religions, Greg Graffin. I'm going off track. It's going off track!
2: Steven, what's hey Greg, up? Greg, how are you? <laughs> Where are you?
3: I'm in, I'm in my basement. You can tell by the frilly curtains that I've got two hours before I have to pick up my kids from school. But I was so psyched to be able to do this
2: thanks but where what what city are you in
3: i'm in uh west windsor new jersey right by princeton
2: okay cool
3: we met a long time ago i used to work at fuse jonah and i w- worked on a show together there called steven's entitled rock show
1: sure i know it, that show. hosted by steven cool
3: <laughs> yes jonah wrote it we posted it and i think uh the last time we talked to you guys was got probably pomona at a warp tour launch show or something but sounds good Definitely. It did sound. It did sound good. <laughs>
2: we just well.
0: Look, it didn't sound as good as this is gonna sound.
2: No. It probably was no ni- than this. But I gotta talk real quiet. So whoever the technical director,
1: that's great. this guy. He's he's a genius. Talk as quiet. A talk way as way quiet so you want. as you want. We'll make it sound good.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm really a bad talker.
1: <laughs> it's fine. I mean, yeah, we're talking about Ithaca. Um, yeah, because I graduated in 2002.
2: So in it's been 02, a while. You wouldn't recognize it. Really. Oh, the place has gone to hell. We got Walmart and Sam's Club in town. We okay. Got, you know, all the big box stores. They fought so hard to keep Walmart out. I remember
1: that was happening when yeah. I was there. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I'm not political about that. I'm, I'm really not. I couldn't give two rats' asses about what stores come into the... You know, the it's re- kind of ridiculous that people, like, would rather uh, travel, you know, 30 miles to Syracuse to To get their basic needs, because let's face it, everything we're using comes from China. So let's not be you know think that we can we can make stuff in Ithaca. True that. So they'd rather burn all those fossil fuels going up to up to Syracuse than walking to the Walmart in town. Right. right. So it's just a little short sighted, you know. It's and that's not what made or really what my wife is doing is really interesting because all over the country now are springing up these um, downtown alliances that are really... She's a marketing person, so... um, But these downtown alliances are um, trying to get people to come back to the center of town, to the Ma and Pa stores, and make it a nice environment down there so you don't have to go to Walmart, you know, and you don't have to go to the mall.
0: Well, state especially, man, has so many... Pretty nice downtowns, and a lot of them have been preserved for the exactly the reason that, like, of the economy because right. they haven't but had the an economy. But the problem is there's
2: not enough uh, commerce to keep them going. Right. So that's why these downtown alliances, and you find them all over the country. They're really important. And uh, they make them a nice place to live. I've lived there now 25 years. So. Well, everybody wants Mayberry, where you can walk down the street, yeah. say hi,
0: stop <laughs> into the hardware store. That's
2: right. <laughs> get a coffee. So where someone knows something about the hardware. Hell yeah.
1: yeah. yeah I saw you do like a and a thing at Cornell. Like it was like, meet a real rock star. And it was like, really? just people, you gave like sort of a talk Just it was a long. I mean, it must have been fifteen years ago, and people asked questions. It was at Cornell somewhere. Was it any good? Yeah, it was great. Okay, it was really entertaining.
2: Because if it wasn't any good, then I'm I totally disavow it.
1: No, it was good. (laughs) Um, But I've been reading your book, um, both of your books, and uh, one of the things that really jumped out in this one was um, that sort of idea where when something bad happens to someone, they're like, "Up, oh, Darwinism. And I see that all the time on, like, like blogs and stuff, where, like, someone does something stupid and gets injured, and people are like, Darwinism. And sort of the, almost like the idea that, like, none of us ever d- make any dumb decisions.
2: Yeah, Darwinism, I mean, has been co-opted, really. I mean, but part of the point of that book is, is the idea that competition and particularly the viciousness of of the Malthusian worldview, which is this idea that, you know, the human population or any population increases so fast that the um, resources to sustain that population uh, can't keep pace. And therefore, there's a huge competition in the world of every individual, slightly outcompeting competing his cohort. And that is leads to a cynicism in society that I mean everything is explained by competition. Right. And so when someone does something stupid instead of compassion or some other, you know, human emotion, we just default to darwinism and this fierce struggle for existence and the, and I think that has actually harmed society. So this book was a, really an attempt to try and Show. Wait. There's another way to look at it, and that is we can look at nature and we can look at species as coexisting and mutually reinforcing one another. So that's why this book was written, and uh, it's it's wildly unpopular idea. <laughs> I will say,
0: I'm fond of Darwinism. Yeah, I just think it's broken.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, Darwinism uh, is uh, look. No single individual is more responsible for what I would call a modern worldview than Charles Darwin. So I'm a fan of Charles Darwin. But Darwinism is uh, has, is something that uh, most people assume to be true. But as this book points out, there is another way to look at the world. And now, it's Because the Darwinism that they're talking about is based on this vicious, ruthless competition in the world. Right. And it's an easy thing to write articles about. Almost every article is written with that assumption that that competition drives this whole drama that we see in life.
0: I mean, I can definitely see why it may not be as relevant with humans, but, I mean, as far as the natural world goes, Darwinism is pretty spot on,
2: right? Well, it's yes and no. I mean... What do you first of all you have to define natural world? It's very difficult to I do mean,
0: the world without humans in it.
2: I don't know if there is a world right. like that. Because if humans didn't exist, there wouldn't you know there, if humans didn't exist, um, there wouldn't be this distinction of natural right. versus Well maybe the un- world unnatural. before humans, then that's what I'm thinking. All I of. all I would ask you to do is look inside your gut, because inside your gut are living an entire microbiome of organisms, bacteria. Right that have been here before humans and they probably will be here after humans, but we depend on them for our existence. Right. Now that's not a story of competition. That's a story of mutualism. That's right. a story of of um, assimilation of populations. And so I think the 21st century will see a lot more of those kind of models being cited to explain what we see, even among human societies, the the idea of mutual uh, reinforcement and symbiotic relationships.
0: Oh, well, we have we we have to.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'm just saying Darwinism works, right? Darwinism explains a ton of uh, phenomena. It doesn't explain everything,
1: right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, to me, also the book was interesting because I'm obviously very familiar with the band, but I don't read a lot of kind of scientific. Stuff. And to me, there were so many ideas from the lyrics, like the idea of like being a global citizen. I was like, oh, this sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, American Jesus. And like that kind of stuff was interesting to sort of make those connections
2: kind of. Well, that's nice of you to be such a lyrical scholar of our work. <laughs> but we've written over 350 songs or something. And uh, I keep joking with not only my family, but uh, my my bandmates and everyone around me that one of the I don't know when, but it's coming soon. I'm going to speak in nothing but lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> because, like you say, our lyrics have touched on so many topics. I think I could get through an entire day with, with just, just citing lines from the songs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, you've noticed something. I mean, I can't tell you that I did that intentionally. Right. It's just part of what comes out of me as a writer.
1: I'm sure. I guess my one question I had was sort of, you know, reading this book and you talk about Sort of the way all these ecosystems are related, and sort of how you recycle, and kind of, kind of doing things for the better good. But I mean, does this ever feel kind of like futilely? Like you're like, well, I'm doing my part, but then you go down the street and see someone has, you know, isn't recycling anything. I mean, how do you sort of, how do you sort of avoid that falling into that? I guess.
2: Uh, Well, first of all, you if you're doing something that's good for the environment, (laughs) it's got to be, it's got to be. internally satisfying
1: yeah okay that makes sense
2: and you have to have a, a real i think one of the chapters of this starts off with some interesting line that i came up with which is something like um, you know my hope for humanity is oftentimes um, squashed by my um, observation of my fellow man you know <laughs> right <laughs> and that's just that's the case if you if you drive your um, desire to recycle based on the hope that everyone else is going to get on board, you're really setting yourself up for a big letdown. Right. And I think you just have to go through life with the idea that most of humanity is very dis- very um, disappointing. And you know, your family, you hope doesn't disappoint you. And generally your family members are the most important thing so you try you hope your family members get on board but even sometimes that doesn't work and so you lower your expectations but that shouldn't deter you from doing the right thing and the right doing what is right in terms of the environment uh really you know it it feels good i think you know when you i mean we live out in the country So we have, you know, we have a lot of uh, forest and uh, we have a lot of uh, fresh water and uh, on our property and, um, you know, I spend time, it's just, it it feels good to go out there and be a steward for the environment. Even though my neighbors are clear cutting their forests, you know, I'm selectively harvesting and growing our forest as if it's a garden and that just feels good. Right. But um, it's with the assumption that we are all going to hell. So, <laughs> but I don't feel like contributing to that truism.
3: Okay. <laughs> it's hard that's, to do that's that. That's fascinating. I, 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 um, it's, I became a vegetarian a couple of years ago and I read an article that talked about how, no, no, it's not an ethical thing to become a vegetarian. It's a personal thing. And what you yeah, want to do?
2: I I respect that, and actually, I actually um, obviously have a lot of friends who are vegetarians, and I'm a biologist, so I know a little bit about the topic. And um, the people who start to get preachy about it, I just roll my eyes because you know they think they're saving the planet, but I got news for you, pal. <laughs> That's not really making a dent. <laughs> You know and and the truth of the matter is that um, if you if you're doing anything because you think you're saving the planet, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. The people I know who are very content with their choices in lifestyle, like veganism or vegetarianism, most of them don't give a rat's ass about me who eats meat, and they I mean they don't feel like saying, "Oh, you're a bad person." Because they're so happy and content with their life that they've made their decisions and maybe they're actually, you know, content. But there's a lot of malcontent people out there and they make decisions based on the weirdest things. Some of them make decisions based on what other people are doing. And I've always, I've always maintained against the grain that, (laughs) that you shouldn't do things that other people do. Uh, just because it's popular. And so I think that blinds a lot of our decision-making, particularly in lifestyle issues like this.
1: Yeah, I also found it really interesting, sort of one of the themes of the book was was sort of this idea that basically the way you are is sort of, so much of who you are is predetermined. I mean, in the sense, like, where you're born, what you come from, what your genetics are. I mean, how does that sort of play into your worldview, I guess? Because I feel like a lot of people you know, do take credit for where they are or sort of blame other people as being lazy if they haven't achieved the same things they do. That's really easy to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, one of the pernicious myths of our society is that anyone can be whatever they want to be. And that simply isn't true. That ju- That's what justifies all of the right-wing aspersions that are cast on disadvantaged people because they say, hey, man, you live in America. You can be whatever you want. Well, that's – the people who are surrounded by poverty, crime, uh, and complete chaos in the inner cities do not have the same opportunities as the the people who live in the quiet, open, and affluent suburbs. And until that's – and so what we're talking about here is environment, and that's – as a biologist, that's what I focus on is what aspects of the environment um, essentially create the individual. Because an individual is a transient thing, right? Genes are somewhat um, eternal. Genes go through time. They're passed from one generation to the next. The environment around that developing embryo is what really does determine the shape of the embryo. And the youngster as a human youngster develops. It's the environment that shapes the individual and what they will become. Now, It's at about this point in my speech where people will interrupt and say no, I had a friend you know, he was abandoned and his mom left him in a dumpster. Okay, and now um, he works in a law office. Okay. So you're full of shit. Well, at that point, I have to reiterate the importance of, of variation. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's not a linear relationship between environmental input and the output of the developing organism. There's a lot of variation built into that. And the one example that that protester just cited is a very, very unusual outlier it's not something that's common yeah so you got to be careful when you use outliers as your um, example because by and large people are disadvantaged if they're brought up in a disadvantaged environment
1: i read a book sort of about that this book the biology of belief i think was called
2: i've seen that and it was did not read it
1: (laughs) that's probably the only biology book that i've read that you haven't read but uh but yeah, it basically talked about we can look at humans the same way as we look at sort of molecules and what makes them healthy as being in good environments and we're made up out of them. So we should can look at those examples and being surrounded by positive people is kind of the same idea.
2: Yeah, that's important.
3: I just read something about how in uh, in Native American reservations, how talking about your environment, how the odds are so stacked against them that if they... If they marry outside of, you know, bloodlines, then they'll lose benefits from the government. Like their children won't be able to have the same thing that that they have. So they literally have a line where it's like they have to go talk to, you know, elders and go, so who is married to who to try and figure out how to just, you know, do we want federal help or do I want to, you know, marry outside and my kids don't get this kind of stuff? It's insane.
2: That is a shame. Yeah, I mean they're one of the groups that are most disadvantaged American mm-hmm. Indians and <clears throat> I actually contribute to the American Indian College Fund because I think it's such an important um such an important uh fund and it's such an important thing, you know, education. All that we're talking about here is education. Right. I mean if people just were a little bit and I don't care if you're privileged or underprivileged, education really is a one of the great equalizers. Because you can be stupid and in a affluent environment, and you'll still probably be okay, right? <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice if you were educated? Because then you might actually be able to help the disadvantaged a little bit more. And so I'm I'm a big advocate of education.
3: Are you? Have you? So, when you, so in bad religion, the descendants go on tour. Do you and Milo just sit and talk about stuff all the time?
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, singers. This might come as a shock, but we are oftentimes labeled prima donnas. (laughs) And in my case, I don't care about labels. I'll actually accept that because I actually don't talk. It's very rare for me to be doing something like this. I don't like to talk when I have to play concerts because, I mean, number one, I'm old. And. I probably You know how they say a heart only has a finite number of beats in it? I think the vocal cords only have a finite number of vibrations in them before it's just over with. So, <laughs> <Would> <laughs> But you? yeah, me and Milo have had some good talks. I mean, he, I like Milo a lot. It's funny because we were only 20 miles apart when, you know, BR made our album about the same... Our first album was about the same year as the Descendants' first album. Wow. And... We never knew of each other. And then he ended up going to the University of Wisconsin. I went to UCLA. But I actually spent one semester at Wisconsin because I'm from Wisconsin. I mean, we have deep roots in Wisconsin. My dad still lives in the same house I grew up in. And Milo would have been on campus at the same time as me. Oh, wow. And we, we never really became friends until 15 years later.
0: That's pretty wild.
2: It's it's really wild, yeah. Shows you how isolated the San Fernando Valley is in California. <laughs> yeah. people, he was from kind of a cool area. You know, <laughs> he got to hang out with the black flag people. But everyone looked down their nose at us uh valley kids even though it's only 20 miles away. It's kind of like being from New Jersey, I guess, and Ma- yeah. the difference between Manhattan and New the Jersey. Valley. Yeah. You it's read- true. I'm a valley boy.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> have you read the no effects book
2: at all oh i've browsed it you know i'm intimately familiar with it i'm sure we're such good friends
1: <laughs> but because you were mike really mentioned you guys as sort of being the band that made him want to get serious about music
2: oh he did yeah i mean we're he never makes any bones about it that we're one of his favorite bands yeah yeah so that's nice although i won't take credit for the stories because they're disgusting <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: true yeah he's been on here before yeah. yeah, we've, 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 it got, we've got.
3: I've got footage that I had to take from Fuse because it's just too good. And you know, I'm just going to save it for a rainy day. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question for you because uh, years ago uh, we were doing some interviews for Fuse out at a Warp tour, and uh, Brett was there. And I happened to mention that I just gotten on DVD a copy of Another State of Mind, mm-hmm. and I watched this man get visibly angry and upset. And he, he clenched his fists and I said, what's up? And he went, the footage, the way it's cut, it shows social distortion playing to a big crowd. That wasn't their crowd. That was a bad religion crowd because you can tell there we are. There's a couple of messed up edits and that's us. I went back and watched it and it, it looked <laughs> for real.
2: No, it's no, no. you can see me on there. Yeah. I'm actually singing. Yeah, they, they definitely stole our, our – um, they stole our crowd.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> I remember that show, though. Um, not the one you described, but the actual footage that they took was... Which, you know, I don't care if they steal footage from our... Uh, that's fine. But they didn't even, like, say... Bad religion in their 30 bands that they listed <laughs> wasn't even on there. So it's no. like, we, to them, we did not exist. <laughs> it's kind of like the New York Times. New York Times will never do an article on bad religion. Never have, never will. The first time they mentioned bad religion was when Frank Ocean did a song called Bad Religion no or way. something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why. It's just <laughs> I think it's part of the New York thing, you know, ignoring Southern California perhaps, but Yeah, we have we to have, do that. We've never been <laughs> even acknowledged as existing. That's pretty bizarre. That so it goes weird. way back though. It goes back to back then. Cause yeah, if you look, you don't even have to look that closely. You can actually just see me singing. Yeah. And what I did at that particular show back when I was inventive on stage nowadays, I just am struggling to get through. But back then I, I thought let's make the world's biggest stage dive. And I actually told, the, it was probably 2,000 people, it was a big show. And I said, okay, everybody up on stage. And literally, the <laughs> audience started pouring onto stage, and we started playing our song, and that's what they, they were filming that. And one after another, the audience would, leaving the stage, one at a time, jumping and landing on each other in this big writhing pit of people. It was pretty dramatic. Uh- I should have gotten at least, like, um, director of photography. That would have been yeah. nice. Yeah. It was my scene. <laughs> I'd have an IMDB database uh, entry yeah, right now. For if real. I, uh,
3: <laughs> you can go back and put it in anyway. Yeah. Cool. Double confirmation. I knew it.
1: Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, And you, I saw you last year when you were at Gramercy. You did that kind of acoustic show with the kind of, I guess, it was promoting the book sort of.
2: Sort of, yeah. That was my friend David Bragger that I came yes. with, and um, it was a publicity stunt. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I there are things you find yourself doing, as you all know, in entertainment industry that you just other people think is a good idea, right? I love playing acoustic music, so for me and David Bragger, who's a virtuoso, I love playing with him. So I convinced him to come with me, and. You know, this was like what we do in our living room. We just play music, so it wasn't any real. You know, it was fun, and I think if you were there, you remember there was some good questions and answers, and it was a nice venue. I really liked the Gramercy Theater. Um, but the the only downside was that 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 was a representation of how far the industry of selling books has declined. Because there's no more such thing as like um just a why don't you just go do a book tour, for instance. You can't the the companies themselves don't like to support them and there's no ma and pa stores to do them in. Oh yeah. So when you're someone who has some other feature like being an entertainer, now they like to combine and it wasn't by the way, it wasn't the book company, it was more my professionals, my managers and agents who thought, why not do a book talk combined with a performance? And it's, you know, I don't know. It was a great evening, but um, I think people are confused because they don't, you know, some of them want to hear about the book and some of them want to hear music. So... They're doing a lot more of these combo platters, and and it's because of uh, a lot of things in the industry that are kind of sad, which is actually selling books is, you know, the profit margins are so slim, the book companies don't have the money they used to have to send authors out to talk about the book. Right. So that's what that was all about.
1: Yeah, we're doing one of those actually with Laura Jane Grace next month.
2: Where Muse she's yeah, books. we're
1: interviewing her about her book, and then she I think she's gonna perform, yeah, that's what but, I yeah. did.
2: I picked some songs that were germane to the chapters yeah, I remember some one guy
1: asked like a really weird question like about your brother or your family, and like it was like you handled it really well, but I was just like, oh
2: my God, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where he, like nobody unlike you, you have a famous sister, I understand, it's true, yes. Who I, th- by the way, give her my best because oh my I think God. she's one of the few talented people in that cast. Well, the th- other one is Bobby Munner. I- Bobby's Hancock.
1: great. Yeah, I told her you were doing the podcast because I subjected her to so much of your music growing up. <laughs> and she was like, are you guys going for a walk? And I was like, no, Vanessa, we're not going for a walk.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> She would maybe be able to help me in my, my 24 hours of nothing but lyrics communicating with people. She probably yeah. would.
1: She's been subjected to a lot of your lyrics. Right, well,
2: <laughs> please give her my best. I will. But um, so you you could actually empathize with me because my brother's not famous. He's just an IT guy at UCLA. <laughs> like this, he works in a closet smaller than this and does this all day. That's useful. <laughs> and this guy gets up in the middle of, you know, there may have been 300 people there. And we're passing the mic around to ask questions about the book, and the guy gets up and says, "Yeah, so what's all this about uh, Grant Graffin? I'm like, "Did he just say my brother's name?" Yeah. First of all, I think I asked him, "How do you know who Grant is? You know, how do you know this?" He said. And then he gave it away. Oh, I was just doing some research online.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. Uh,
2: Every wrong uh. thing you can say.
0: It's not like he was like his work buddy, right? Who's was just trying to get him some air time.
2: No. <laughs> oh, man. that's Anyway, really yeah, that's question. my brother. Let's not talk about the family. Yeah.
0: If you need some IT help, then
2: you can give him a call. <laughs> Joan
3: and I did a oh. Q&A with no effects at the Gramercy, uh-huh. and then yes, we they did. were going to play. And the Q&A just went from like, it went quickly from, uh, tell me about this record to, I saw you in Argentina, <laughs>
2: and yeah! Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get a lot of that too. I mean, what's your kind of
1: favorite thing to talk about? I mean, do you like talking about the history of the band? Do you like talking about this kind of stuff? I mean, does it is it all...
2: You know, it's hard if most people don't know this, but I'm actually a people person. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times I'm put in positions where um it I'm expected to lead. People just assume, for instance, that because I'm a entertaining singer, right, I'm a great lecturer in evolution. My lectures are pretty damn boring because there's some technical shit we got to go over that ain't that fun. Right. And people are like, "Geez, that was I was really shocked, man. I've been <laughs> I've been to so many bad religion shows, you know, and you leave there feeling really energized, but I went to his lecture and jeez. Where is the poetry? He's talking about stuff that's like I used to have to learn in high school. <laughs> I don't want to go back to that. Anyway, the point is i'm not I've always considered myself a people person, meaning uh i I react to what other people want to talk about. It's more interesting of a conversation if they bring something to the conversation right so I kind of save the rambles and the rants and the theorizing to um around the house <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like when I really go off on something that's been bugging me, my wife and family say, you're ranting. (laughs) I don't rant when I'm with groups of people because I want to see what they're interested in.
1: Right. Well, one thing I was interested in, it's sort of um, that you kind of remarked about might be surprising to people was the fact that you believed government should intervene when it comes to kind of environmental policy. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit maybe and, and why you think that's important
3: and yeah, does that make you conflicted with Richard Nixon, who helped set up the EPA?
2: Well, look, every president has their good and their bad, you know? <laughs> some I'm not a Republican, but some people say, you know, Nixon was good because he got us out of the uh, Vietnam War, for instance. So, I mean, there's good and bad. Although, if it goes red this time, I don't know if there will be any good. It'll okay. be minuscule amounts of good, but a lot more bad. But but every president has accolades and and things that are generally good for humanity, but I think what you brought up, Jonah, was one of the surprising things in the book. But the other surprising thing related to that, and I'll answer your question, is the idea that I present that you know not all species are equal, like we know, you know you, everyone knows you know there are people who think. You know, conservation means don't touch anything. Let nature take over. And while I appreciate some of that, um big part of this book is talking about stewardship and how if the fact is we've inherited and mapped every square inch of this planet, it puts a responsibility on our shoulders. That now we have to be stewards. We have to manage it. If you let it just run as usual, it's naive because we've already altered the entire face of the planet. There's not even the areas we call wilderness areas, many of them were already logged once. These are secondary growth forests in many cases. And in order to get them back to old growth forests, we need to intervene, we need to take out the invasive species. We need to remove things that have altered the ecosystem from the way that it was. And so I don't, I think what I'm saying is that you can't suggest that we just have a hands off approach and that every species is equally viable. That's just, it's not a tenable position if you're going to be committed to stewardship. Now, because we're committed to stewardship, we have to have laws. We have to have rules. We have to have really smart people who make those rules, people who understand species and their interactions and the ecosystems that we depend on. Because I got news for you. If we let the ecosystems run amok, they're not going to be good for us. And they won't be as efficient as they could be as they once were. So we need laws it's the only way forward because of what we started out talking about which was a generally dark view of humanity which is people don't do things they don't do the right thing of their own volition and they don't necessarily get on board with you if you're doing it doing the right thing uh for your internal gratification so we need laws in order to make sure that we prioritize certain species over others.
1: But you've, you've also said, um, like, how does that play into the idea of, like, a song like You Are the Government? I mean, is, it, is that saying, like, that you also have a personal responsibility, even if you aren't making the laws, or are those kind of two separate ideas that I'm just sort of...
2: No, I think You Are the Government could be a nationalistic song. I didn't write it to be nationalistic, but, you know, it could, it could be Power of Democracy, And so the laws don't have to be um, um, authoritarian. They could be—we could vote for them. I think everyone, though, would vote for Clean Water Act. Right. You know, and you are the government implies that you have a power as a people um, that's um, more—hopefully that can override the power of— the corporations and the the uh, people interested in making profit. I mean, that's that's a huge change that needs to happen in the 21st century.
3: Now you aden- you identify as a as a naturalist. You don't go like um, atheist or agnostic or anything like that for any kind
2: of belief system. When people ask me, "What do you believe?" which only happens in interviews like this, by the way. <laughs> Um, I, yeah. Then I identify as a naturalist, like you said. Because mm-hmm. I have, I,
3: I. It's interesting. I know, um, you know, certain people are like, no, no. I'm a secular humanist, and I always get very confused. And I'm like, I what? It's it's weird when you have to say define. I I, I tend to go apathetic, agnostic, don't know, don't care. That's kind of the way I kind of lean f- towards it. Yeah, but, you'd rather
2: um, you'd actually rather nobody asked you. Yeah,
3: <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much.
2: But I think secular humanist just means as opposed to a religious humanist, right? I mean I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I mean so secular humanism means something. It it means that you're outside the conventional churches. And humanism does mean something. It means you put a high value on human life. I put a moderately high to medium value on human life, but Certainly, in this book, I make the claim another controversy, which is we in order to go move forward, we do have to put human beings at the pinnacle of the most important species on the planet. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Because what that implies is that we now have an ethical imperative to take care of the environment. Because we are the most important species, we are the stewards of the planet, and therefore the whole world is our garden. You want to go pollute your garden, then you're certainly not a humanist, and um, you're certainly not doing anything for the sustainability of the planet. So I think you have to, we're going to have to take that approach, and this is an ethical uh, puzzle.
1: Yeah, and also all of these sort of ideas you have in here sort of about ecosystems and how things are related and how just people seem to think so kind of short-sightedly seems to be kind of a pattern, especially when it comes to capitalism.
2: Yeah, it's really, it's tough to get into these conversations about short-sightedness because, for instance, how do you, you know, how do you argue with someone who says, I'm going to go buy an electric car, you know, and and they, they think they're doing it, you know, because they're saving the environment, but they're only thinking about the tailpipe. They're not really thinking about the entire underside of that electric car as a battery. And there's no good. There's no way to dispose of batteries that is isn't right. incredibly toxic to the to the uh, terrestrial ecosystem.
0: Nor to make electricity. So, you, so then I
2: look like an asshole because I'm like, yeah, that's not really the answer. Right. And then they're like, "What the fuck do you mean, man? I just spent fifty thousand bucks, <laughs> and you're fucking trying to tell me." That that I'm not doing something good for the environment, you burn your fucking diesel car. You know, so then all of a sudden I'm a dick.
1: But no, I mean, like there is, a, I mean, like I have friends like that too. And they'll be like, well, if you're driving, you're killing bugs or like, there's always like, you know, and you have all these, you know, you like, have,
0: who are these people? I had
1: like some, <laughs> some, some like hardline vegan friends in college. Are you I,
3: hanging out with, are you hanging out with Jainists? Is that the people that don't, <laughs> you know, that boil all the water? Yeah. I don't know. The, yeah,
2: see, I don't drive. I just walk everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I tiptoe because if, if my heel <laughs> hits the ground, I can't tell what's behind there.
3: Yeah. No, that's good. And I may actually Bastard.
2: be injuring things.
3: You're injuring the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so don't laugh. Well, it's at funny. Me Everybody when you complains on you know their phones that are you know full of what rare earth metals, and you can't like you say properly dispose of it, and it's.
2: Hey, I got news for you guys. You know, not a single person who I talk to who's all excited about getting off of you know fossil fuels. Not a single one of them doesn't have a cell phone and an electric car. They want. And they use all these electric appliances. And like you just said, the mining, the mining and acquisition of those um, minerals is incredibly polluting, not only to the atmosphere, but we're losing ecosystems by the mining as well. And that's just so the hipsters can maintain their lifestyle and say that they're connected. You know what I mean? So the the point is, it, yes, it's very, people don't think long, they don't think about the entire arc. They think about that short-sightedness. And I believe that their heart is in a fairly good place, but the poison is the culture that they think that they're subscribing to because they think it's all good and there's no downside. And that's a very potent thing when, you know, the whole world is connected on these little devices. Um, It's not a pretty world of uh, what's going on to, to actually run those devices. That's not, it's not sustainable either. No. So my next book is going to be a work of fiction actually. Really? Um, yeah. Is and it I, gonna be
3: stranger than or
2: it'll probably it'll be very strange, but not stranger than fiction.
1: Is it sort of based on some of these ideas? Yeah.
2: Or? It's gonna it's gonna actually be um probably take place a couple hundred years in the future. And um it's going to it's gonna basically be a world without uh fossil fuels. And um, I'll leave it at that, but it's going to be a, it, it's based on these kinds of, uh, suppositions that, you know, our world has be that we live in today is so, um, sure that electricity is the way to go, but we've destroyed all our ecosystems in 200 years because we had to mine so many minerals and cut down so many forests to obtain these precious metals to run our devices that now there's no fossil fuels left and batteries have become obsolete because we can't dispose of them without poisoning the last vestiges of fresh water that are left. Mm. So it's not apocalyptic (laughs) though, because our main character is an inventor who came up with a way to, genetically engineer draft animals. So we are actually going to be going back. It's actually going to save... What's going to save the planet is by reverting to the power generators of the 17th and 18th century. And the story will revolve around this uh, mad genius scientist. But it's a real interesting world that I'm painting because it seems bleak, but in a sense... This is essentially a crisis we have to go through before we can really reach a sustainable existence. Makes so, sense. go ahead and go buy your Apple products and <laughs> and your and your uh, <laughs> gas guzzlers because we have to go through. We're in the corridor of crisis right now. Just to get it, just but, to get but, it over with. Yeah. That's what you're <laughs>
1: seems like a viable thing. Like I was talking to someone else about that, and it was like kind of having a negative discussion. He was like, "Yeah, but there's these guys like." tesla or whoever it's like so you get someone really smart and they can really change things
2: yeah and then I, I think so there's two key inventions in this book idea that i'm developing and one of them is this guy you know genetic engineering is going to only become more commonplace you know apologies to all the people in england who have outlawed genetically modified foods but <laughs> I'm, i hate to say it, but all food is genetically modified. Right. You go out in nature, we were talking about what's natural. Go find me a potato somewhere in the wild. There isn't yeah, ever, one.
3: Yeah. Ever have a real apple that just fell off a tree? Yeah. yeah. Like the so point just is, grew wild? Tell no, me how great that tastes.
2: The point is everything that we eat has been genetically modified from some wild type. It just has taken centuries. Right. But those those organisms would not live in the wild,
0: right? They've used well, yeah. They've used a a natural method of crossbreeding. Well, selective breeding.
2: Yeah. Now we can do it in one generation. Yeah. And somehow, somehow we're violating a natural code or something. A lot of it is hoo ha. So, but the point is, it's only going to become more commonplace in the future. We, I believe, embryos will be viable experimental um, subject. And I think it's not at all a stretch to say that in the future we will be um, genetically engineering animals, you know, more so than we are today. And this inventor came up with a great... So so one invention is this do-everything draft animal. But the other invention that's critical to this fictional plot is that an invention which I believe is actually on the horizon. Remember, this book takes place 200 years in the future. But actually, it's going to be really familiar because everything I'm talking about is going on right now. And I think we're only a few decades away from an invention of carbon sequestration that is taking carbon that's from the tailpipe of the internal combustion engine that's destined to go in the atmosphere and sequestering it at the tailpipe so that none of the carbon dioxide emissions affect the atmosphere. In a sense, putting a halt to all dangerous emissions. Right. That, in my book, is a key invention. In the real world, we're far from it, but we know that bacteria, which are being discovered at the rate of hundreds, every, hundreds of new species of bacteria coming just because of the technology to discover them. Um, it's happening all the time. Uh, right now, as we speak, one of these species is going to turn out to be a really good photosynthesizer. And photosynthesis is the process of taking carbon in the form of CO2 and turning it into sugar. And so my inventor in the book is going to come up with that. Now imagine if there was no downside to internal combustion, what would happen? The entire world would experience a period of uh, affluence and improvement in the squalid living conditions of the most underprivileged people. And the population then would become more affluent and more comfortable and we would burn through the fossil fuels faster than ever.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, the last ten percent of the people in Connecticut that don't have SUVs would buy them. <laughs> That's exactly
2: right. And there'd be all those restrict. You know, right now there's a great pressure on car companies to make a twenty mile per hour, twenty miles per gallon minimum car. Right. That would be out the window. You know, people would love their big gas guzzlers again, <laughs> and we'd be consuming the. The gas companies would all be happy. We'd be consuming fuel at an unprecedented rate, and, then we'd and get that's it the way. In my book, we 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 go through the final reserves on Earth of of fossil fuels. So, what
0: about human beings as batteries?
2: I don't know. That they, they
3: did that. That was the Matrix.
2: <laughs> did they? Sorry, right? uh,
3: yeah.
2: I was just geeking out. There. You guys yeah. are, I I'm not a science. believe it or not. Even though what I presented you was a future world of speculative fiction
0: you don't want to call it sci-fi
2: it's not sci-fi because right. i don't know anything about it my brother grant i told you about him <laughs> he we is, read about him
3: online yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a sci-fi expert okay so you, he was the guy in the family who just you know said oh that could be done <laughs>
1: yeah, because I keep thinking whenever we talk about like 200 years down the road, I'm always like, but what if artificial intelligence takes over and then we the robots kind of destroy us? I feel like that seems like viable. No, there's
3: there's law. Lo- there's companies are banding against AI, and one of the holdouts is actually Apple. Really? Yeah, I just read about that recently. In keeping with the theme of cor- corporations, it's like my first thought is: are they trying to save us from robots, or what are they look What are they looking out for? What's the <laughs> other thing? What are they obfuscating here?
2: Well. <laughs> I think it's obvious if, if the word corporation is involved, they don't give a rat's ass about anything ethical. It's just what's going to keep the investors happy. God, what's exciting. going to make a profit for the investors? I don't really buy the Kurzweil stuff yeah. about uh, intelligent machines. Stuff. No. It's, I'm kind of
0: with you on that.
2: Jonah's very interested in it. Or i like, just scared. Because it's just... we. They're still dependent on a switch.
3: Right. (laughs) So,
2: you know, that's what it comes down to. It's kind of like naive to think that, oh, we can't control the power source that goes into these machines. I guess
1: the idea is that if they're so much more intelligent than us, they can sort of just figure something out.
2: Maybe so.
0: I don't know. No, I get it. If you're going to have a useful machine, you need to be able to yield over a lot of control and power to it. Think about it. Think right. about how you can't spell but that's anymore why, because that's of the That's why
2: checker. Uh, the draft animal idea is, and by the way, this is such a good fucking idea. I don't want you guys <laughs> even... Sh- why am I telling you all this? We
3: live in New York. No. We have no draft animals. Don't I'm going to be Look, really <laughs> pissed off if of you guys... people who listen is, to this podcast are going to write all this down.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm worried about. Someone writes my fucking book.
0: got to go back. Okay, hey, guys, I listen. Them, I, I'd <laughs> really script, like it script. if you'd edit out the draft animal part because I'm worried about... <laughs>
3: Greg, do you read no. Warren Ellis at all? Do you, Say know again. That? do you know that author Warren Ellis? Nope, you check his stuff out He was a comic book writer and he writes a lot of futuristic stuff that he has different ideas. He has a comic out now that's um uh called injection, and it's about a group of people who create uh, an AI but then they they unleash it into the consciousness of the of the internet basically. And it tries to it tries to become it's trying to learn what it is to become a person.
2: Yeah, and that that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think it has to be artificial intelligence though. See, isn't it interesting to think? Could we? There's make,
3: also mystical stuff involved too. Yeah, well, it's, I it's, hate that you, shit. You would dig him because,
2: <laughs> When, no, because when an author introduces mystical shit it just means, I don't know, I'm in a I'm kind of in a bind here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a break. It's fiction. <laughs> then they get all upset when you like you say that's not realistic. It's fiction. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah, I want to okay. believe my fiction. <laughs> you know, but um what I was thinking is that uh, that question is very interesting, but it seems much more plausible to ask, could we teach a horse to do that? By genetically right. engineering it. Teach a horse to be more human or at least yeah, maybe empathize yeah. with humans more. Or teach a now horse Now the horse people talk. are going to come down on me. They're going to be pissed off. <laughs> they're like, horses are extremely sensitive. And they're very and intelligent. <laughs> they are, They are so smart. My <laughs> horse is so smart. I can actually just make a slight movement <laughs> with my shoulder and it responds. <laughs> It, it was, you
3: love dressage.
2: Let me just yeah.
0: let me just take a little heat off of you, Greg.
3: Uh,
0: horses are fucking dinosaur morons, <laughs> so you guys can hate me.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: I mean, yeah. I guess. Do you have? I mean, sort of, kind of winding
1: this up. Like, do you have? Uh,
2: let's wind this up. Let's
1: wind this up. Is that a term? As wind my wife. Wa-
2: no, as my wife always says, when something gets too boring, let's wrap this up.
0: <laughs> you shouldn't talk like that in front of your daughter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's true it's rapping it's it's a rap. I mean do you
1: have do you have hope for humanity?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I'm an incredibly hopeful person. I use comedy to show my darker side so it's still laughter. <laughs> you know, it's but the funny thing what is comedy really? It's like it's pointing out some of the ironies. I think I think humans are an incredibly ironic um evolutionary manifestation. Oh, yeah. And so, it's funny. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm very hopeful. I'm a generally hopeful person. And this book that I'm describing to you is hopeful. Make no mistake. It just seems to me you're so
1: educated on this stuff, and it seems to me almost like the more you learn, the more of a bummer it seems to be, <laughs> to me at least.
2: Yeah, but that might come from your, no offense, um, limited reading of the subject.
1: Very limited.
2: Yeah. Because the the stuff that stands out is a bummer, but this book ends with a chapter about evolution management. It's very uplifting, and it's it's it says the bummer stuff you hear about is the Malthusian competition and the fact that everyone's struggling to survive. That's right. that's with the stuff that sticks out of the fray. But what's what's below the fray is the incredible amount of coexistence and symbiosis that occurs on the planet and then you start thinking about that and you do see it in human beings too you know we help one another you know yeah. not everybody helps one another but we do have that ability and it's cool to help on help each other and it feels good that's the main thing it feels good to help one
3: another. well and everybody benefits
2: really and those are hopeful things yeah
3: so in general how's your new drummer
2: Oh, he's fantastic. <laughs> Jamie is, um, you know, we're just so lucky because uh, with Brooks, we lost a great, probably one of the greatest drummers alive. But
3: Guy, he's so good.
2: Yeah, but Jamie came along and added an element that Brooks didn't have, which was, he. Jamie's a little older, and Jamie was more studied than Brooks on sort of the old school um, style, whatever that means. Brooks... Has a style. He made everything his style, but in emulating bad religion, you need someone with that old school kind of shuffle. And Jamie's so great at that. So, I used uh, to
3: watch him play in Snot years ago, and I was I was always impressed by yeah. the way he played because he would at some clubs he would swing his arms up so high he would have to turn the kid around because he would hit the wall.
2: Yeah, <laughs> he still does that. Yeah,
3: he's such a great drummer. Yeah, such I'm a great glad. Dynamic. I'm
2: glad you like him because. We were worried at first that nobody would care, but
3: oh, yeah, you have to always... know who's going to be able to play a Bad Religion. Like that's key. Like yeah. that's
2: that's important. Like no, it is. He's a great guy, and we're very lucky to have him.
1: When you join Bad Religion, how many songs do you, do you have to teach him before the tour? You just like learn these hundred songs or something?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I think he's up to one hundred and thirty or something. Really? Yeah, because <laughs> we have to take thirty a night and make a set list, so we want to have some some flexibility there
1: i had i when i went to when you guys did the century shows last time i heard that your lighting guy made the set list
2: for the for the <laughs> That's show probably true yeah
1: is that true yeah. friend, i was like that was a really i've never seen a set like that before and they were like, yeah, the lighting guy made and I was our like, lighting guy is
2: a huge fan so he's, okay he's like i trust him more than myself to choose a good set list so
3: uh-huh, oh, we're debunking good. all the getting all the dirt.
2: Yeah, Is I love all
3: this. I, I talked to um, we're friends with uh, Lyle Pressler, uh-huh. and and I was and uh, he just asked me the day he went. Have you seen Brian Baker lately? And I said no. Why? And he went. he's Lost so much weight, man. It's amazing. I, you wouldn't even recognize him.
2: Yeah, and people I, don't recognize and, him.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was like, and I said, what 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 brought it on? And he went. He stopped drinking. Which then made Ian, of course, go, see.
2: (laughs) I know. Brian was always proud of his uh, breaking the rules of uh, straight edge. He said his favorite tattoo when he was drunk. Whenever Brian was drunk, he would say his favorite tattoo is his straight edge uh, tattoo that he got so many years ago. And he would say, I invented straight edge. (laughs) He was proud of that. But he's much better now. But, cool. you know, speaking of music, we we better wrap it up with by talking about the project that we're not supposed to talk about.
1: Yes, can we talk about that?
2: Yeah. Okay. We've, we did this album in April of last year. Okay. Another Greg Graffin solo album. I put those out once every eight years or something, so it's about time to do another one. And Brett had this idea of doing a full production, so with a full band, and Brett put together the rhythm section. So my last one was the rhythm section of a band called The Weaker Thens, who have subsequently broken up. This time, he uh, put together uh, the guys from Social Distortion as my rhythm section. So Dave Hidalgo is playing drums. Brent Harding is on bass. And Johnny Two Bags is playing guitar. And the guy you saw me with, David Bragger, is playing fiddle and mandolin. And we did a full production of 10 songs that I wrote and um it came out amazing.
1: Yeah, I've been and listening to it a lot. It's fantastic. Me and
2: David Bragger could sit around all day and just play music. And every night I play music. And our family uh tradition as I uh, explained on the last album which was called Cold as the Clay was always you know this kind of americana old time music. And Brett and I sort of, it's really interesting, you know, because Brett produced this album, and um, he produced the last solo album, and yet Brett didn't have the deep roots in the Americana world that I did, but there's a common thread in that he loved Elton John in the 70s, and he loved the production of Elton John, and he always brought, I think, a level of sophistication to Bad Religion Because he was such a good producer. And uh, even though we co produced all the bad religion work, he did the bulk of the mixing and the engineering. And our albums always sounded really great. And nobody in the punk world would think that that aesthetic came from his love of Elton John, but it did. (laughs) Right. You know, because those albums sound so amazing. But Elton John always had this, you know, he always wanted to be a cowboy. (laughs) Elton John has a lot of songs that were written in the kind of cowboy style and so brett saw a real parallel there between that sort of elton john tumbleweed connection era and the stuff that i was writing and he thought why don't we do a full production on this and get the guys from social d who are little i didn't even know this they have long deep roots in americana music too and of course david hidalgo is um his father is these guys are royalty in los angeles um for uh, authentic um, uh, music, because his dad was in Los Lobos right. and David Hidalgo plays with so many bands, but just great musicianship all around. And the I guess there's some neat stories associated with it as well. You know, these are just side stories, like the fact that Bad Religion and Social D um, played together in 1980. It was our first show ever. And it oh, wow. was their third show. And if you would have told us that day that, hey, guys, in 35 years, you're going to make an Americana album together, <laughs> we would have said, what? What are you talking about? But the music was already in us at that time because of our upbringing. And a lot of the way that I sing in Bad Religion is similar to the way I sing uh, in my solo stuff. And the way Johnny Two plays with Social D is, is really... Um, easy to recognize on this album. And I guess the the content of the record is, is all songs. I wanted to make all upbeat songs. See, I'm a hopeful person. <laughs> and these songs are happy, upbeat, but not sappy, sentimental. I hate that kind of writing. And so these are, uh, I wanted to make something that was timeless and you couldn't really put your finger on when it was made. And in the future, 200 years from now, there'll still be an electrical grid, by the way, so you can listen to your favorite music. But it won't be powered by batteries. We'll have no storage, but we'll have a grid. Think about that. So you'll be able to listen to this record. During the day. Yeah. (laughs) And say, hey, I cannot tell when this record was made, but it's really good. And the songs are going to... The title of the album is Millport which is a little town in upstate New York. But I wanted to make it... uh, Stephen Stills had an album called Manassas that is timeless, in my opinion. And and the title of the album, you know it's a place, but you can't really put your finger on where it is. I wanted to do that with Millport, a place that's so familiar to anyone who's ever driven around America or lives in America that they think it's the town right up the road. And yet... Uh, something that is a vestige of our past that is that is really says more about yesterday than it does about today, and the enigma is it still exists, right? What's it doing here? There is a reason that it's here, but you got to listen to the record to figure it out. (laughs) All
0: right, yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm not smart (laughs) (laughs) or passionate. That is not true. I'm just another human being. Yeah. But I got this microphone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think there may be a carbon monoxide leak in this apartment. (laughs) Brad is slowly losing his mind. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Thank you to Greg for coming by. That was so amazing. Uh, Thank you to everyone at Epitaph and Anti for helping set that up. Um, christine hillary matt our whole crew over there uh greg's new album millport comes out next week march 10th on anti it's really great um if you don't like americana or that kind of stuff i still think you could really like this record if you like if you just like good rock songs they're good you know like and it's the subject matter is really interesting and uh the musicianship is first rate and it's Greg's voice. I mean, you can't yeah, go man. wrong.
0: Grow up. Get the record. already. Grow
1: up. Get the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? Uh, yeah. Check out Greg's books. Once you've purchased all of Greg's material, including the Bad Religion vinyl box set, which I have. Wow. Uh, then you should go on Venmo and you can donate at, go, off track uh, to our podcast. It'll right. say to Brad and.
0: But it really is. for. But it really
1: track. is for all of us. And that can help us pay our server costs. And we thought that would be an easy way to do it versus our, you know, our website, which I think is PayPal or something. Yeah. I don't know. You I'm can not, pay, you
0: can go through our website too and, and donate money.
1: Yeah. But everyone has Venmo. You're Venmoing like your friend, like six bucks for your latte. And you can put a little you. tag on it, you
0: know. Yeah. You
1: can, you can like you can write give, give us a little emoji.
0: <laughs> you can like, yeah, you can, you can ask me out. Yeah. Ask Jonah out. Ask me out. He might say yes. I probably will say yes. He put enough money in there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you put over $2, I'll probably say yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that's one way you can support this podcast. Um, Other ways that don't involve money, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Leave us a nice review on iTunes. Tweet at us. Email us. Tell your friends. We have a Facebook page. Tell your friends. Spread the love. Spread the love. If you have a studio and you're looking to have a super successful podcast with cool guests... Let us know
0: because... Yeah, if you're in Manhattan or Brooklyn, we're um we're currently... We're not homeless. I'd say that we're um, nomads. Couch, we're like couch surfing. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely couch surfing. Yeah. So, um, but we, yeah, we're open to offers. If you do, if you are in that field, whether it's a recording studio or uh, some other kind of studio, someplace we're op- quiet. We're open to, yeah, lots of different
1: podcast abilities. We have high
0: expectations. We like, you know... We're used to free stumptown and usually a fridge full of beer, but Yeah. I guess we're gonna have to let that one go. Free footwear. Oh, I got some beer here. You want a beer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll get you a beer after we
1: sign off. This, this is this is this is the best day of my life. <laughs> I've always wanted to come to Brad's apartment and now I'm just here drinking beers talking about Greg Graffin. Amazing. What else could life you, is good, dude. What else could you ask for on a on a Thursday? The sun afternoon? just came through the window and yeah. hit you right in the face. Feels good. I like it. <laughs> um okay. Uh but yeah thanks to to Greg for coming by and we'll be back with another podcast next week. Bye.